Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, this is Stu Hoden with Believe in the Media Guide on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Family is the through line in Ryan McGee's life and career and the subject of his next book, Sidelines and Bloodlines, A Father, His Sons, and Our Life in College Football. Written with father Dr. Jerry E. McGee and brother Sam McGee, it drops September 15th and is available for pre-order on Amazon, Google Play, or wherever you get your books. After graduating from the University of Tennessee and taking a job with minor league baseball's Asheville Tourists, Ryan McGee began his career at ESPN as a production assistant and a writer at ESPN the Magazine. Following three years at Fox Sports Net and five at NASCAR, where he earned two of his five Emmy Awards and scripted Paul Newman for the documentary Dale on Dale Earnhardt, he returned to the worldwide leader in sports. A senior writer for ESPN, a reporter for E60, and a regular contributor to SportsCenter, SEC Nation, and SEC Now, McGee co-hosts the SEC Network and ESPN radio show Marty and McGee with Marty Smith on Saturday mornings from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Named National Motorsports Press Association Writer of the Year six times, a member of the Football Writers Association of America and the National Collegiate Baseball Writers, he's the author of The Road to Omaha, Its Hopes and History at the College World Series, ESPN Ultimate NASCAR, 100 Defining Moments in Stock Car Racing History, and a co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Racing to the Finish, with the newest NASCAR Hall of Famer, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Follow Ryan on Twitter at ESPN McGee, all one word. Ryan McGee, how are you and your family doing? We're good, Stu. And I, we consider you a, a member of the family. We've known each other for a long time now. You mentioned that Fox Sports, uh, that brief time I was there, and you and I became great friends. You were We were the two-person motorsports department. Actually, it was three. It was you, me, and Daryl Walter. We were the three-person <laughs> motorsports department at foxsports.com. So it's good, it's good to see your face. Yeah, well, it's awesome to see you and to read about this new book, which the blurb begins, football is a game of lines on and off the gridiron. And that really defines your father, Jerry, who he's had a, a Forrest Gump-like existence. He's the 2012 North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame inductee and Order of the Longleaf Pine recipient. He was a gas man for cup driver Dave Marcus served as president of Wingate University and officiated over 400 college football games, including three national title tilts among 24 postseason assignments. The blurb continues, the lines of the game have provided a lifelong series of adventures, education, and even given them a needed emotional anchor to cope with the loss of their wife and mother, Hannah. Um, like you, your dad's an author, your brother's a lawyer, so writing runs in the family and your family has a great story to tell. When and how did you come up with the idea for the book? Uh, probably when I was 18. I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> it, it, well, it, it's, so the running joke with all college football officials, really, I mean, any sports official is, um, man, I should write a book. You know, every, that, that's the running joke is, well, mm -hmm. well, you should write a book or I should write a book because when these guys, men and women, get together 
for an official event or just for drinks. All they do is tell stories. And so my entire life, my father has told these stories going all the way back to his days. I mean, officiating intramural games as a student at East Carolina. Back then it was East Carolina College. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so the stories are, have always been off the chart. And, and for my brother and, and my brother and I, you know, we learned football in a, a very unique way. And all of my friends who were uh, you know, children of football officials or any sports officials, they same, they'll say the same thing. You know, coaches, kids learn football in a different way and players children learn football in a different way and then there's a third team on the field and that's the officials and so we learned football with you know my dad sitting at the pool the neighborhood swimming pool when I was a kid you know reading his new rule book with his highlighter because he's getting ready for exams or you know him taking my mom and my brother and myself and the ottoman and the dog and putting us all in the den and saying, all right, let me explain to you how the new Halo, Halo rule is going to work on punt return. So that's how I learned football and, um, and how I learned sports. And so, uh, you know, it was the coolest thing in the world to watch your dad, you know, on television on Saturday afternoons on Jefferson Pilot, you know, mm-hmm. officiating ACC games. Uh, even, even if you had to listen to people, you know, screaming cuss words at your dad or, or you know, telling him he's number one with their middle finger. But you learn how to watch football that way, too. And you had a special indoctrination on November 12th, 1983 at UVA against North Carolina. It seems that that press pass is kind of your rosebud for your career and, and your life. Um, I was wondering, maybe you could take us back to that day. Yeah, no, it was uh, my first ever uh, media credentials. <laughs> and I just turned 13. Uh, I had a camera that Santa Claus had brought me the year before. And, uh, I mean, I was 13 for like two, for like two weeks leading that game and was on the sideline. We actually had one sideline pass and we would rotate it between myself, uh, my brother, who's three years younger than me. So he was 10. Hmm. Um, and then, uh, the, the son of another one of the officials in the game, we rotated and I got I pulled the lucky straw. I got to do first quarter and fourth quarter. And, um, so yeah, I was standing on the sideline, right on the pylon, uh, with my little camera. Uh, with all of the photographers from the Washington Post, you know, the Virginia Times Union, you know, the, the Richmond, all, every paper in, in, in North Carolina, Virginia were there in Charlottesville. It's a huge game. It was two top 10 teams. Um, and Barry Word, uh, Kansas City Chiefs fans will recognize that. I mean, he was ACC Player of the Year. He dove over the pylon uh, basically to win the ACC championship. And uh, the good news is I got a great picture of Barry Word as he cut over the pylon with the football. The bad news is if you look in the background, there's a linebacker kind of blowing in on the play where he missed on word and he just cleaned my clock. I mean, blew me up. And and I might've weighed at the time, I might've weighed 85 pounds. And so everything flew out of every pocket and I was flat on my back on that terrible, terrible old AstroTurf just sitting on concrete in Charlottesville. And everyone was worried about me and all the photographers ran over, helped me up. And, uh, and all I could think was, this is the coolest thing in the history of the war. And, and at my second credential was shortly after that at, Mar- uh, at Duke, Maryland at Duke. And uh, same thing. At halftime, the photographers were like, hey, kid, come with us. And we've been on the field for a half of football. We walked up to the grandstands uh, at Wade, at, uh, um, you know, there in, um, at Duke, and we went up into the uh, Wallace Wade Stadium. We went up into the press box. 
and they gave me like a barbecue sandwich and a hot dog and a Pepsi and a big chocolate chip cookie. And Miss North Carolina walked by and said hello. And Mike Krzyzewski, who was new at the time, was like, hey, guys, how's it going? And then we went back on the field for the second half. And I was like, this is the greatest job in the history of the world. <laughs> and so I spent the rest of my life trying to figure out how to get paid to go to sporting events. And, and knock on wood, uh, you know, that's worked out. And it's all because of Dad. I mean, yeah. Dad got those credentials for me because he knew I had an interest in photography. He knew I loved sports. And uh, my brother and I both grew up, like, literally standing on the sideline. In the decade of the 90s, I was wondering if we could – walk through that um starting out you at tennessee in 89 and um, a video guy for uh johnny majors um your dad that year the 90 orange bowl he with uh, another fella from upstate south carolina had their first big bowl game and then you fast forward to 1999 you're married you're into your career tennessee wins the national championship and then that same year, your, your mom passes away. And, and I had heard a previous podcast, the college football chaps, that your dad had the line of the, of the book, um, the before and after that moment in, in your life. But I was wondering, the, the 90s, just how formative that was for you. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, formative for me just as a person. Um, you know, in the middle of that decade, I graduate college and I go work at ESPN. Um, and my brother uh, graduates Wake Forest and goes to Yale Law School. And my, uh, my father made a huge career move where he, career vice president and development officer became president of Wingate University, which was his career goal was to, was to be president of a, of a school. Um, and in the middle of all that, the Big East uh, football conference was formed. And so right after dad worked the biggest game in his life at that point, the 1990 Orange Bowl, it was Notre Dame against number one Colorado. Colorado had a chance to win the national championship. This was the, this was the, Sal Unessi, um, you know, Cinderella story team, uh, Eric Bieniemy and those guys uh, making it to the national championship game. And they were upset by Notre Dame in that game. Notre Dame's only loss had been to Miami. It was the strangest night, Stu, because uh, there were two different cheers going on. There was the reaction to the game happening there in the old Orange Bowl. And then there were the Miami fans who were watching the Sugar Bowl Mm-hmm. You know, on their watch Sony Watchmen or listen on the radio, and all of a sudden, <laughs> randomly in the middle of a TV timeout, this huge cheer would go up. It's because Miami had scored, you know, uh, you know, a couple time zones away, and the uh, um, and so it was this crazy night. But my father, you mentioned, um, we lived in Travers Rest, South Carolina at the time. My dad worked at Furman University, and the Travers Rest High School Devil Dogs. That was where my brother and I went to school. One of our rivals was Woodruff High School, mm-hmm. and the quarterback at Woodruff High School right before I started high school was Tony Rice. And now he was the quarterback at Notre Dame. And he, he really was the, the – I mean, he was the spoke in the wheel of that, that those teams that played for national championships and went on that, that incredible run at Notre Dame was on there in the late 80s, early 90s. And my dad – one of my dad's jobs as a field judge was always to go and get the captains to walk out for the coin toss. So he goes to get Tony Rice from Notre Dame. And here's dad and Tony Rice, and they're walking out of the tunnel in the – I mean, it was – God bless the old Orange Bowl. It was a dump. I mean, it was, it, it was – the history was amazing and the hurricanes and all that, but they're walking out of the old rickety tunnel, and O.J. Simpson's the sideline reporter for NBC, and he's like, hey, guys, have a great game, you know, just before O.J. became O.J. And dad is walking out on the field with Tony Rice, and he says – and knowing the answer, he goes, hey, Rice, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And Rice is like, I'm from Woodruff, South Carolina. 
And dad says, well, I'm from Traverse Rest. And he goes, what the <laughs> hell is the old guy from Traverse Rest and a young guy from Woodard doing like here tonight? And, uh, and to this day, Tony Rice just smiles when he hears that story, but it was, it was an incredible night. And, uh, that Lou Holtz, of course, was coaching Notre Dame. And the day before the game, they have the big logistics meeting. And NBC was televising the game, and it was folks from Colorado and folks from Notre Dame and NBC and the stadium and the officials were there. It's one hour of, you know, I mean, I mean Stu, you know, from your years at NASCAR, it's the minute by minute. Here's what we're yeah. going to do, and here's what's going to happen. And so they go through this whole thing. And anybody have any questions? And there's this pause. And Lou Holtz goes, yeah, he goes, what the hell is the deal with the Buffalo? <laughs> and everybody starts laughing because Coach Holtz, you know, is a funny guy. Right. And then, there's, then it gets quiet. And he goes, I'm being serious. What the hell is the deal with the Buffalo? Because he said all he could think was, you know, he didn't need Michael Stonebreaker or Chris Zorch to get mm-hmm. run over by Ralphie the Buffalo because he doesn't know where he's going before the game. But, but so shortly after that game, um, the Big East became a football conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad received an invitation to do that. And so after almost a decade of working games in the ACC, and he loved the ACC. We lived in Raleigh. We lived in Greenville. We lived in those places. But you can only work Virginia, Maryland so many times. And so the chance to go to the Big East, to go to Boston College and Syracuse and um, to, to go to Pitt, uh, and it's, now it's Pitt-Penn State, and they also worked the Army-Navy game. Uh, Big East officials did. They worked Notre Dame home games. So it was uh, – he did that for years and loved it and eventually came back to the ACC. And at the end of that decade that you're talking about, yeah, 1999, dad's second year back in the ACC, uh, we lost my mother unexpectedly, brain aneurysm. Um, and this was in uh, February. Um, and we obviously – worst time of our lives – um, you know, the worst time, I mean, it was just, it was, it was awful. But when we got to football in the fall, it was the first time things felt sort of normal. Dad had his schedule and he was hanging out with his friends and he was going back to these stadiums that he'd been going to since 1982, 83. And it was all hugs and, and, and crying and handshakes and are you okay and it was from coaches and staffers and security guards and people that he that had been around his whole career and the other officials and the line that you're talking about my favorite line in the book was from dad where he said that prior to 1999 he believed that college football needed him but in the fall of 99 he realized that he needed college football and uh, to me that's just the summation of what the book is about I didn't realize it was February and just a month earlier, Tennessee had won the national championship. Yeah. So what's Yeah. The- and I, I, I had gotten married the November before that. Uh, in fact, my wife and I controversially because the NASCAR season had just ended back then I went to every race. Uh, we got married in the middle of a huge game between Tennessee and Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, we got married at halftime and didn't <laughs> know it. It, it, it wasn't, you, you know, I'm a football guy. You shouldn't get married in the fall, but we had to do it. My dad had to give up a game that weekend. But yeah. We were just, it was time to get married. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, on our wedding video, uh, we've all myself, my groomsmen who all went to Tennessee, we vanish. <laughs> and the cameraman runs down the hallway and finds us. And like five minutes after getting married, me and my boys are down there watching. <laughs> we're checking <laughs> on the, on the Kentucky Tennessee school. 
fast forwarding again to um, in the blurb and in, in your Twitter feed, you note your dad met 2007 Rose Bowl Parade Grand Marshal George Lucas and engaged in awkward small talk. Um, you're a well-known Star Wars fan. And yeah. I was wondering, is this the most jealous you've ever been of your dad? And given the chance, what would you say to George Lucas? My dad has traveled the world. My dad's been to like a hundred countries and he has three degrees and, you know, hit every, checked off every box of his lifetime goals. Yeah. Been to every sporting event you think of, but yeah. So I, I went to his first, he would work two Rose Bowls. I went to his first Rose Bowl, which is the Ohio State, Arizona State. Uh, Jake the Snake Plumber should have won game. And that did not go to my father's second Rose Bowl. I, I still have a souvenir up there, the 2007 game, Michigan and, and USC. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have – this the only game I have a souvenir of in my office, which I think is cruel because it's next to all my <laughs> Star Wars stuff. George George Lucas, Southern California guy, was the uh, – he was a grand marshal. And when you go to these events, the grand marshal, you're around them all the time. Like when we went in 96, it was – I think it was Carl Lewis. We were in Carl Lewis. Like we saw him at everything. <laughs> and uh, John Glenn was senator from Ohio and Ohio State was in the game. We saw you know, John Glenn everywhere. And so I know that dad saw George Lucas everywhere for like three days and it still makes me mad. But at halftime or excuse me, prior to the game, again, my dad's job was to bring out the captains. Uh, he brought uh, the captains from one of the teams out in midfield. They're standing there and it's pregame and whatever, everybody's waiting on television. And here comes George Lucas with Darth Vader and like a couple stormtroopers. <laughs> and so the officials, and the captains and George Lucas and the stormtroopers and Darth Vader are standing there and, uh, and they're just making small talk. And my dad just tells George Lucas, Hey, you know, man, we've bought a lot of your stuff. And George Lucas is like, well, you know, thanks, thanks for, you know, contributing <laughs> to the call or whatever. And so, and so yeah, I'm at home just angry about this. My phone rings and it was my best friend from high school. And he goes, I knew it. He goes, the officials are part of the dark side. They're, they're out there talking to Darth Vader and the stormtroopers. So yeah, it was, uh, I, my dad's done a lot of amazing things and I'm jealous of a lot of it, but, but I've never been more jealous. But if I met George Lucas, um, I've thought about this a lot, Stu, as you know, if I met George Lucas, I think that first of all, I would let him know that he has not ruined my life because I, you know, a lot of the hardcore Star Wars fans spend all their time trying to tell him how he, he ruined their life with the, with the prequels or whatever. I, I just, I want to thank him because uh, I thought it was over with when I was, you know, about the age I was when I went to Virginia that day, 12, 13 years old. And instead I've gotten new material. I mean, all the time. And my, and I've enjoyed it with my daughter. So I'd probably thank him first. And then I'd probably have some very specific hardcore nerd questions <laughs> about yeah. a couple of things. The, the process of writing the book, um, I heard you recount, uh, really it was uh, last December. And then you put the finishing touches on it at a you know, university, of Tennessee, Kentucky uh, game and really compressed it down. Um, there are three authors. Um, you've co-written books before, as I mentioned with Dale Jr. What was the process for this? Are there three different voices? Is it through your voice? No. Well, and listen, you know this because you're a former editor of mine. I will push a deadline past the deadline. (laughs) That's kind of my thing. And so, uh, so part of the reason that we had to write the book in such a compressed amount of time was because it was greenlit right at the start of college football season. So I was a little busy. Yeah. Uh, and my, my father and my brother are both busy too. And so once college football's regular season was over, that December was very intense. And January and February, I mean, when I was in Daytona for the 500 for a week, 
I probably didn't go to the track for at least a few of those days because I was holed up in the hotel just hammered hard as I could mm-hmm. go. But yeah, mm-hmm. but to answer your question, there are three very distinct voices in the book. And we even go so far as to, you know, I kind of write the, the, the skeleton of the book. I'm kind of, my, my words are kind of the, the backbone of the whole thing. But then when it's time for my brother to tell one of his stories, you know, it says Sam. Okay. Yeah. There it is. And and mm-hmm. for my dad, it says, you know, Jerry and, mm-hmm. or dad, and there mm-hmm. it is. And, um, you know, we even separate them off kind of by, by cut, like colored boxes. So, mm-hmm. you know, who you're talking, you know, who's talking at the time. So it, that was a, it was a challenge for me. It was very different than the experience with Dylan Hart Jr. Because with Dylan Hart Jr. It was taking his words and, you know, making it consumable, you know, and, mm-hmm. and trying to take the topic of brain injuries and, and putting it in a language that would work for who we probably thought that our, our readers would be, mm-hmm. um, with, with dad, with Sam, you know, the joke has always been when we all lived together and you didn't know who had answered the phone because mm-hmm. we sound alike, our cadence mm-hmm. is alike, our hand motions are alike. Everything is, is very similar. So, um, there were, uh, I just would sit down with my brother and say, I've heard the story you've told a thousand times about being a ball boy at Furman and screaming at the officials during a, a you know, an FCS uh, a semifinal game in the snow, but tell it to me again. And so he would tell the story and I just would transcribe it. I mean, I didn't, I, I might clean it up a little bit, but he also is an attorney. So Mm-hmm. When I put my brother's words in front of him, he had a lot of notes, <laughs> but, but, but I wanted it, you know, but he yeah. said, you know, no offense, but I would not say this this way. Um, you know, but he, he was, it was very meticulous, which is good. It's exactly what I needed. With the state of the country as it is, um, you know, on Thursday, NCAA president Mark Emmert used a word that appeared in the Big Ten uh, fall sports release last week. Uh, Emmert saying, if there is to be college sports in the fall. We need to get a much better handle on the pandemic. So if there isn't college football, your book's release becomes more poignant and, and more timely. But um, just wondering your thoughts. Um, you had SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey on uh, Marty McGee last week. Um, and we've heard throughout the pandemic, Dr. Fauci say, we don't make the timeline, the virus does. Uh, and it also it almost sounded like Greg Sankey saying college sports don't make the timeline, college presidents do. Um, you noted how University of Florida's athletics budget's $150 million, accounting for 2.5% of the school's total $6 billion budget. Right. Um, <laughs> so I was heartened to hear that Sankey is taking University of South Carolina biostatistician's advice to take all the time he needs to make a decision. But with your dad be having the experience as a referee and as a college president, has he provided any perspective on what he sees for this fall? No, he has. And, and, you know, dad served on the president's council at the NCAA for several years. So he, he was the, he was the representative for all of division two football. So, you know, you had a D two rep, a D three rep, uh, an FCS rep. And then, then it was, you know, father, whomever was the president of Notre Dame at the time. And it was like Gordon Gee, you know, from, from Ohio State. It was, you know, it was uh, these huge names in the room. And at the time, their concern was uh, back when Dad was on that committee, it was about scheduling. You know, is the schedule getting too long? Uh, what the practice schedule's like? Is it too much wear and tear on the kids? And now that is a very 
relevant topic because if you're talking about spring football, the concern for everyone is, you know, there's a cycle to what these kids go through when it comes to recovery, uh, you know, working out, you know, how much would upset that. But, yeah, dad's – the perspective that I've had um, is kind of what you're talking about, which is what I've tried to remind everyone, including my coworkers at ESPN since this thing started, which is ultimately all due respect to Nick Saban or the athletic director at a Power 5 school or the commissioner of a Power 5 conference. Ultimately, this decision is going to be made by the university presidents because their concern – um, the football team is a really big deal, right? But their concern is a student body in some cases of 55, 60,000 undergrads who are, you mentioned $6 billion. The vast majority of that money is coming from tuition. And so th- it's a much larger concern for the university presidents. Do we open the doors to the campus, let alone the football stadium? And, is, and whether people want to like it or not, student athletes, is still an accurate term, no matter how much people want to roll their eyes at it. They're students. Mm-hmm. And so the 110 football players, if they're told you can't be on campus, um, you've got to take all your classes virtually because guess what? The other 45,000 students, that's what they're doing too. That's how that's going to go. So if the gates to the campus aren't open, uh, the gates to the football stadium aren't going to be open. And that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because they like to think, because we're in the sports world, that the football team runs everything. At the end of the day, Bobby Bowden's one of the greatest of all time, and uh, Bobby Knight, whatever else, the president's fired them, or mm. the president's told them it's time to make a change. And mm. so at the end of the day, uh, there's a boss, and that boss is the man or the woman who sits you know, in that president's office. So it's it, – it, but you're right about Greg Sankey. Due diligence is not a strong enough term because uh-huh. the amount of data that he's consuming – and the amount of information that he's trying to process as the deadline nears toward the end of July. And I've known John Swafford no longer than I've known Greg Sankey, and I know he's doing the exact same thing at the ACC. So it's uh, going to be an interesting couple of weeks. Another college sport that you and your dad took part in uh, was the College World Series in Omaha, which should have hosted that event um, and didn't uh, for the first time since its first one in 1950 as COVID-19 had other ideas. LSU's baseball coach told you the family reunion has been canceled. What brings you back to Omaha every year, and, and how does the cancellation impact the event and, and that city? Well, it, it was a really, really tough conversation with a lot of people in Omaha, and, and it was the, you know, I'm very fortunate that my, my life kind of has a, a rhythm and it's a ridiculous schedule. You know, I go to the college football championship in January, I go to Daytona in February, as I have for 25 years. Uh, I go to Indianapolis in May, uh, as I have for most of those 25 years. And I go to Omaha uh, in June, you know, and and have most years since, you know, 2008. And so there's a natural rhythm to your life, right? And then you hit Labor Day weekend and it's time for football and Darlington, Southern 500 and the whole thing. And so it's uh, when, when those things are missing, there's a definite gap in what you're doing. There's a hole in what you're doing that day. I felt it, you know, just a couple of weeks ago um, when I was with my family, you know, for the first time in forever while the College World Series championship game or, or Memorial Day weekend when I was home for the first time in my entire adult life. 
and my poor family didn't know what to do with me. So it's, uh, it's a difficult time, but, but yeah, my dad, the first time I went to the college world series was with my father in the early two thousands when he was on this NCAA committee and got tickets. And we had watched the college world series on ESPN. My dad played college baseball at East Carolina, part of his Forrest Gump thing. My brother walked on awake for a minute. And so uh, we're a college baseball family, having grown up in Raleigh with, with mm-hmm. you know, four schools within easy driving distance, going to games all the time. And so uh, it, I, my favorite sporting events, too, are the ones that are so closely identified with the city where they're held. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, College World Series. Um, and so when those events are missing, uh, I mean, can you imagine mm-hmm. if – if February came and there was no Daytona 500, I just can't, you know, so it's just, mm-hmm. uh, that part of it is very difficult to, to process, but, um, but, but yeah, but, but dad, um, dad and I first went out there for father's day. Uh, and that was when I was like sitting in the stands, like I have to write a book about this. And thankfully, <laughs> thankfully they'll let me do it a few years later. That reminds me of your hometown number two, Shelby, with the American Legion World Series, I guess. Right. Something similar. Yeah, no. And yeah. we drove right through there. Uh, mm-hmm. um, headed up for the mountains for a few days. We drove right through Shelby and I, I, my love of minor league baseball yeah. started in Shelby. We had a minor league baseball team, the Shelby pirates and the Shelby reds right there at the high school, Shelby high school in front of 40 people a night. <laughs> and, uh, and that's now an amazing facility where they play, you know, the, uh, the American Legion world series. And, and it was, it was really something driving through Shelby and their, their traffic because yeah. it wasn't happening. So it's, uh, yeah. uh, but, but hopefully if everybody does what they're supposed to do, it'll be back next year. You've worn uh, over 20 weeks worth of minor league baseball hats on Marty and McGee. Um, you <laughs> mentioned um, this connection you have with Shelby and minor league baseball. So your heart's really with the sport. Um, contraction had been discussed before the pandemic. Uh, the 2020 season has been canceled. And the MLB draft was reduced from 40 to five rounds. What's the future for minor league baseball and its players? Well, it's not good. And, and you know, and what's frustrating is, is that I don't want to sound like just some Southeastern dude that thinks New York's terrible because I don't, but these decisions are being made by people in New York who don't understand what the team in Pulaski, Virginia means to mm-hmm. that town mm-hmm. or to what the team in Billings, Montana means to that town. You know, that that's the part that I understand. And it's not even that, you know, it's, it's, it's um, uh, it's bigger cities that that have that, that might lose their teams, and so to save a few dollars, and they're already not paying these kids enough in minor leagues, which is a whole other issue. But to 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 save some bucks, uh, so I, I I guess so they can throw another twenty million at a right fielder somewhere, is very frustrating. Yeah, I've been mm-hmm. to, I've been to. I mean, you know, we travel all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm up to like a hundred and thirty minor league ballparks, and and the uh, and I've got hats for almost all of them, but it's, uh, I think about what that means to those towns and to take that away from them is that's as, that's about as coastal elitist as you can get. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's, uh, I think it's a shame, but hopefully that when I talk to minor league team general managers, I've talked to a lot, you know, they, they depend entirely on the gate. They depend entirely on hot dogs bought. And that's why I've kind of helped tell people buy merchandise, you know, mm-hmm more than likely your local minor league team is having some sort of event, drive-in movie or a mm-hmm. stand-up comedian, or just go have dinner. And I'm trying to con- encourage people to do that because, uh, you know, the bottom line is going to be probably uh, 
is going to be their best argument to keep their team, you know, mm-hmm. when, when this conversation resumes at some point. Well, you inculcate a positive mental attitude in your family. So I want to get back on a positive from the <laughs> pandemic. If you can, if you can think in the, in these terms, the best of Marty and McGee's show and tell debuted July 3rd on the SEC network. And it follows Saturday, July 18th edition of Marty and McGee, which will have LSU head football coach Ed Ogeron on a day that will feature all eight episodes of Saturdays in the South, the history of SEC football airing from noon to midnight. So show and tell connected with some great guests like country music stars, Kane Brown and Luke Combs, NASCAR's Jimmy Johnson, the bachelor's Maddie Pruitt, South Carolina head football coach, Will Muschamp and sports center anchor, Kenny Main. You connected virtually with these guests and as a talent, but also a producer, will this remote way of storytelling continue? Do you think post pandemic? Oh, I think so. And, and I'm really curious to see, um, I mean, I've had this conversation with uh, former coworkers of yours and mine, um, you know, with NASCAR about, you know, what, what do we think we're going to do going forward? Because I think that uh, there certainly is a huge advantage as a writer of being in front of someone. But as you know, if you have now shown race car drivers that they can leave faster than they were leaving before, mm-hmm. <laughs> they can <Yeah. laughs> FaceTime from the car, then yeah. that's what they're probably going to try to do in the future. But no, I, I think that it's going to change a lot of things. And honestly, I think it's going to provide a little bit of a solution for some folks because the, the biggest problem for newspapers um, and the biggest problem for, you know, smaller websites and even the big ones is finding the travel money. You know, that's the single biggest expense. And so, you are always, always going to want your media members to be there uh, versus not. But, um, you know, maybe you pick and choose your spots now because now everyone knows um, that there's a much less expensive way, you know, to do this. Um, But everybody's going to have to be on board with that. You know, what, what I don't want is I don't want teams to use this or leagues to use this as a wall to build or a moat to build. But, but, um, but I think, you know, everybody's kind of all in this together. And I think everybody realizes there's some positives with this to go with the, with the negatives. So when, whenever things resume to normal, I do think it'll be altered a little bit. And sticking with NASCAR at uh, Talladega, a Confederate flag was flown behind a defund NASCAR sign as others paraded the battle flag outside the track. And NASCAR released a statement saying a noose was found in Bubba Wallace's garage stall. An FBI investigation determined the noose to be a garage door pull rope. NASCAR President Steve Phelps stated, everyone wanted to show their support for a family member of NASCAR. We are one big family. We are one large community. And everyone's belief is that someone was attacking a member of our family. You got into this on NASCAR Drives Change on um, Marty and McGee, but why do you think NASCAR is choosing this moment to fight and not resort to the old school playbook that it did use for years? Well, I mean, listen, you and I both were on the payroll there at one point and, and you and I both know the people who worked in the building. Um, and, and the reality is, is that where their heart and their head is, is not where that flag is. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you, you refrain, you don't want to use the word opportunity when it comes to anything with the pandemic, but the reality is, is that this was an opportunity. Um, because of what was happening in the country uh, and is happening in the country with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the fact that you know, 
you're the first sport back. Um, the fact that uh, there's more attention being paid to the sport anyway, uh, regardless of all of this, uh, the stage was there um, to finally make the statement that so many of us wanted NASCAR to make a really long time ago. And it's not just you and me, it's Dale Earnhardt Jr. who yeah. called for that flight to be taken out a long time ago. And so um, it was an opportunity. It was. And I remember talking to Bubba Wallace years ago. And then again, prior to his Daytona 500 debut in 2018, we did a big story about Bubba in the magazine, ESPN the magazine, uh, and on the Undefeated uh, website. We did a, a, a big companion television piece for SportsCenter. And what he told us then was that he wasn't ready to handle uh, what he knew was coming one day four years ago, five years ago, probably even three years ago. Now he is. And, and I commend him for what he's handled because it couldn't have been messier. And, um, and, and it's certainly in the days following Talladega uh, with what the noose was and what it wasn't and how long it had been there and how long it hadn't. Um, and the initial handling of that didn't do him any favors, uh, although the intent was great and, the, and everyone's heart was in the right place. And that includes me writing, writing a column that yeah. was, uh, was a little jump the gun. But he has handled it with such grace. Um, and I, I, I can't wait to see how we look back on this 10 years from now. Yeah. And those, listen, it was very predictable. Uh, you know, the guys with the trucks and the Confederate flags of Talladega and the person flying the flag. And you know, they flew a banner over Bristol, though it didn't have the flag yeah. on it. Um, but that was, and, and Daytona will be, will be interesting. There weren't a lot of Confederate flags, like less than two dozen there. Um, in February of 2020, um, in 2021, it'll probably be more than that just because people are going to push back a little bit, but I, I see this as kind of the last grope and the last gasp of the people, uh, they're outnumbered and, uh, and they know that and NASCAR has let them know that. And that's why I think it's an important moment. You know, I, I wouldn't, you know, the jumping the gun comment, you born in Rockingham, you know, your great, great, great grandfather and uncle, walked 600 miles from an Elmira, New York prison following the Civil War back home. And you, you talked to your great aunt about, um, about that, and your, your brother talked with um, the descendants of um, enslaved people who worked on your forefather's um, property. So yeah, the emotion, I think, can be excused. But, well, that, yeah, in that, in that column, I will never apologize for. And, no, and, and, no. In, the, and in the column I wrote about the noose, I, I yeah. I'm not apologizing for it because right. there still were – everything happened within the context of that day, which was the day those flags were on the back of the pickup trucks and the day. And, and so at the end of that day, and Oh, by the way, it was rain out. You, they come to NASCAR executives. Hey, I think we found a noose in a garage mm -hmm. stall. I mean, this, mm -hmm. that's what their reaction was. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I reacted to. But, but the moment that they had on Monday where everyone visibly showed their support for Bubba Wallace. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's the photograph that I think will always, they'll be showing that for as long as they're racing race cars. Yeah. And one of the days for me that I think could be a Charlotte 30 for 30, June 10th, 2020, when the Confederate flag was banned, you had the Jerry Richardson statue and unrelated circumstances removed and uh, Black Lives Matter painted on um, Tryon Street in, in um, Uptown. Um, it was really a powerful day, that race that night with the Black Lives Matter paint scheme, um, Darrell Wallace Jr., Bubba, uh, racing down the street from Danville, Virginia, Wendell Scott's um, hometown. So, 
um, yeah, let, let uh, your people there know 30 for 30 for Charlotte. That'd be a good idea. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. I'm already, I'm going to start working <laughs> on my show treatment as soon as we, as soon as we're done here. <laughs> so speaking of 30, um, 30th anniversary of the release of days of thunder, you wrote an in-depth ESPN.com piece. And as a fan of the film who can recite every line, what's something you learned or something that surprised you? I, I didn't understand the level of hedonism. That, 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 I mean, I mean it, it was crazy. I mean, it was, and it makes, you know, it makes sense. I mean, this film was shot. It was really the last big blockbuster film shoot of the eighties. You know, mm-hmm. the shoot started uh, in the fall of 1989. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, just the Rick Hendrick telling me about, it, they got a chainsaw out <laughs> and at the university of Hilton, just South of the Charlotte motor speedway, uh, the production crew got tired of walking up down the hallway. So they just got a chainsaw and cut basically their own doorways to adjoin all the rooms. And, uh, you know, the parties that took place down in uh, Daytona, uh, because this was a shoot that was supposed to last a little less than two months and it lasted like six. And so (laughs) they doubled their budget. And a lot of that just went toward, I mean, quite frankly, dancers and drugs. And mm-hmm. so that, that, that level of it was, and then when I got Jerry Bruckheimer on the phone, who was so gracious and, and, and bless his heart is trying to post-produce Top Gun Maverick remotely. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it has like five films that he doesn't know what's going to happen with them in the next, you know, six months. And he was so kind to call from Los Angeles. And when I asked him about the partying, uh, he goes, you know, I don't really recall a lot of that. And he goes, and that's, he goes, that's probably for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> I mean, he, he, yeah, he, he handled it great, but he, he was, he was fantastic. And to get him on the phone, I was, I was 100%, you know, fanboying out a little bit, but he was, uh, and he, but he was very honest about the experience. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was, uh, you know, me, man, I've been working on that piece for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I've been interviewing people bit by bit for, you know, the better part of a couple of years. And so I was excited that, that, uh, it, it, a lot of people read it. So it's good. And you mentioned Top Gun Maverick, the year will end with that flashback film. And in February, while you were at Daytona, you rode with the blue angels. Could you describe that experience, especially buzzing Cape Canaveral? Yes. Yeah, Thunderbirds. Yeah. It was air force yeah. Thunderbirds and it was, uh, uh oh no, it was fine. So, so we, we, yeah, we sat down, uh, it's, a, you, you have a whole like, orientation that lasts several hours before you get in the plane. And I was, I mean, full disclosure, I went to space camp when I was a kid. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I'm the one that had all the, the model planes that I built hanging off the, the ceiling of my bedroom. And so as soon as I sat down to meet with Gator, uh, <laughs> my, my pilot, I set my phone down and it has like a space shuttle pop mm-hmm. socket on it. And as soon as he saw that, he goes, Oh, you, are you, you're a NASA guy. I go, Oh, you don't even know. <laughs> and I said, I went to space camp. I said, unfortunately, I said, you know, when science turned to math, mm-hmm. you know, about 11th grade, I realized I couldn't be an astronaut because <laughs> I couldn't do the science, but I knew, I mean, read every book, I knew everything about it. And so, uh, when he realized very quickly, uh, Gator did that I was, I mean, legitimately a fan and I was asking him questions that I think he thought were somewhat informed. Uh, he, told me he said he was applying for the astronaut program and we went, he, and this is a guy who's flown hundreds of combat mm-hmm. missions mm-hmm. over afghanistan and iraq and we were just chatting about everything and next thing i know we're getting in the we're getting in our, our our f-16 and he's helping me strap in he looked at me he goes hey if it's cool with you i called down to the cape they said <laughs> we could fly over there today 
<laughs> I go, what? So we spent an hour flying just around uh, Cape Canaveral. And uh, we basically simulated a launch over launch pad 39A, mm. which is where Apollo 11 and all the shuttle missions mm. went off. Mm. Um, I got to fly an F-16. Wow. I did some, and, and we actually did a, we couldn't, we couldn't put the, the wheels on the ground, but we did, we flew about six feet over the ground and did a simulated landing on this old space shuttle uh, landing strip. And, mm. and the, the people in the VAB, the big vehicle assembly building, mm-hmm. later on, they were all, they're posting on Twitter. Hey, it's M16s <laughs> and so on. So I saw a video of it. So it was, and I did not pass out and I didn't throw yeah. up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, uh, no, it was, it was, you, you and I both, Stu, have been very fortunate in our lives to get mm-hmm. to do a lot of things we didn't think we would ever get to do. But uh, flying in the F-16 with Gator was mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. over Cape Canaveral. That was, it's, it's, that's number one with a bullet. So back to Jerry Bruckheimer telling you Tom Cruise is planning a, to film a movie in the International <laughs> Space Station. Should space be left to astronauts and Jedi, or are you cool with this? Uh, if Tom Cruise, <laughs> I think of, oh, if, if there was, if there was any just citizen of earth mm-hmm. that we should choose to, to go up to the space station, I say Tom Cruise is the guy, <laughs> uh, my, my buddy, Tom Luganbill, um, uh, you know, great college football analyst and, uh, played football and he's our, he, our recruiting director at ESPN. He's a big movie guy. Like me, he's a big Marvel guy and star Wars and all that stuff. And, the last Mission Impossible movie, I remember Luganville Lug- called me on the phone. He goes, have you seen this movie yet? I said, no. I said, I'm going to go see it this weekend. And he goes, all I have to say is, he said, Tom Cruise is 100% willing to die for our entertainment. <laughs> yeah, this is the movie where he broke off his ribs, like doing some yeah. building jump. And so, and obviously he's in that jet in Maverick. I mean, there's no question about that. And uh, um, so, yeah, it's, uh, uh, if, if we were to choose one person, Mm-hmm. to represent us yeah but no i've told my wife a hundred times I, i'm always doing the math with my age and what's happening with elon musk and and with um you know nasa with everything that's going mm-hmm. on and i'm like i told her i said babe i said if 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 they sell tickets <laughs> then i'm probably gonna buy a ticket yeah. and she's she says she's on board with it so but yeah for the work and right now uh, keep it to the astronauts and the cosmonauts and 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 the Jedi, yeah. But, but Tom Tom Cruise would be a good, mm-hmm. he'd be a good representative for Earth. So that's what's coming up in your future. Any projects or events that are more in the near future that we should be looking forward to from you? Well, obviously, we're we're really focused on the book it's coming out September fifteenth, um, and um, but it's uh, we're kind of. I'm, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen with college football, obviously. Uh, but knock on wood, I've been very busy. Right now it's all about keeping track of the news, which is changing, it feels like, hourly um, about who's going to play and when and what the schedule might look like. Um, but, uh, but in the meantime, and I'm, and I'm working on a big project right now about to, to the subject we were just talking about, about diversity in motorsports just in general. Um, you know, Lewis Hamilton, obviously, maybe the greatest of all time, he and I had a great conversation about this last November in Austin and, uh, and obviously what Bob Wallace is doing, Antron Brown and the HRA, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what have their challenges been and how do they feel now versus how they felt, you know, three months ago. And so, uh, um, but yeah, I got a lot going on. We just, we actually, we just did a thing for ESPN.com as well. Uh, we did a tug of war draft 
mm. like myself and like five or six other writers, we had a draft and very specific rules, but we picked our, our perfect tug of war team. And uh, <laughs> I think that, I think that's going to be released soon too. I will say this, a lot of the choices were obvious, a lot of offensive linemen and, um, uh, I got some rugby players and, and all that, but then I've got Ryan Newman on my team ah, uh-huh. because uh, you had to have the, you had to get a smaller person. And Ryan Newman, as mm-hmm. a race car driver, is a big guy, mm-hmm. um, but but as a football player, whatever, he's not. But Ryan Newman also, um, I thought he was dead. And forty eight hours later, he walked out yeah. of the you know walked out of there like he's walked out of McDonald's with yeah. his girls. And Crazy. so uh, uh, I'll take tough on my tug of war team. Mm-hmm. I think Daryl Green did pretty well in the Superstars competition back in the no, day. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Well, we, we did not know this. I didn't know this till they told us tug of war was an Olympic sport. Whoa, wow! Like in the twenties, huh. and of course, yeah. And I, you'd be you'd be not shocked to know that it, the gold medal was won by a bunch of cops from London. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah, September 15th, Sidelines and Bloodlines, available for pre-order on Amazon, Google Play, or wherever you get your books. We're really looking forward to that, Ryan, and, and thank you very much for your time. Hey, Stu, it's just any excuse to talk to you. I'm all about, mm-hmm. and, uh, and if we sell some books in the meantime, I appreciate that, too. Well, thanks for listening to Believe in the Media Guide. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes and find us wherever you get your podcasts, including Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm on Twitter at Hotem, H-O-T-H-E-M as in Mary. Stay tuned and stay safe. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.